I'm Philip Shaw. I'm the Chief Economist for Investec here in London. This is the first of our economic webinars for a while. And of course, uh, again, it's been a highly eventful year. Although we'll be taking a look at the current issues of the day, uh, the principal focus will be on key themes of 2022. And with that in mind, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to our webinars. Let me introduce Tom Standage from The Economist. Tom is Deputy Editor of The Economist and Editor of the yearly World Ahead series. He's also responsible for the newspaper's digital strategy and the development of new digital products, um, as well as publishing Tom's top 10 uh, this time of year. Tom's written, I think it's six history books. Uh, so good morning, Tom. Great to have you here with us today. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. OK, before we begin the session proper, please do note that our comments do not constitute investment advice. We're actually speaking on the morning of Tuesday, the 30th of November. Time to hand over to Tom Standage for his take on what lies in store over next year. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and I'm going to be telling you um, about our predictions at The Economist for what's going to happen in 2022. I'm going to give you my top 10. This is derived from our annual, which I, I edit, um, used to be called The World In. We've just renamed it this year to The World Ahead. Um, and you can see some previous entries in the series there. So essentially, uh, this is written by my colleagues at The Economist, and um, this is the 36th year we've been doing it. We're joined by leading figures in politics, business, and the arts. So we've got people like Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, and he calls for an end to vaccine apartheid, for example. We also have the co-founders of BioNTech uh, telling us what they think is going to happen with mRNA vaccines next, um, and so forth. So we have lots of different predictions and analysis and opinions from from different people, uh, both inside The Economist and outside. And what I'm going to do today is to sort of draw those together. I do this within the annual itself. There's a, a top 10 trends in the editor's letter that I have at the beginning, and I'm essentially going to do you a, a sort of summary of that. Um, there are various things that we know are going to happen next year. This is what we journalists call diary stories. Um, so we know that, you know, Olaf Schultz is going to have taken over uh, probably in the middle of December. Uh, we know we're going to have um, various elections and, and anniversaries and, and sports tournaments. So those are the sort of big tentpole things that we know are going to happen. Uh, the question is, what are the sort of things in between? What are the big themes? So I'm just going to quickly take you through um, 10 of those. Uh, a really big theme that plays out in lots of areas is the rivalry between America and China in particular, and democracy and autocracy more generally. And this is a sort of reassertion of a, of a longer term mega trend. Uh, we hope we can see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, with the pandemic. And, uh, and so, you know, bigger, bigger trends are sort of reasserting themselves, I think, like this and like um, the need to deal with climate change. And next year is going to be particularly interesting because we're going to have this very uh, clear contrast between America and China and the way their political systems work. So we're going to have the midterm elections in, in the US and we're going to have the Communist Party Congress in China. And um, the, the midterm elections are going to be quite messy. Uh, there's going to be, you know, all sorts of um, it's going to be a sort of a carnival of the way American democracy works or doesn't work, depending on, on how you look at things. Um, and in contrast to that, we're going to have this very heavily stage managed um, party congress in China where Xi Jinping is going to be confirmed in power for, for several more years. Normally, he would be handing over to someone else at this point. Um, but is not doing so. And so you're going to have this this sort of chaos of, of democracy in America where the Democrats are very likely to lose control of the, of the House and probably the Senate too, um, and will have even less scope to, to do things and get things done. And this will just sort of reinforce the uh, 
the Chinese Communist Party's position that democracy is dangerous and unstable. And of course, Donald Trump is waiting in the wings and wants to come back and he will no doubt um, be uh, heavily involved in the in the midterm campaign next year as well. And this is all just proof as far as the Chinese are concerned that um, democracy is a, you know, a bad way of doing things. Um, and uh, and that actually, you know, having a, a central uh, party with centralized control is the way to go. The East is rising and the West is declining, as, as officials like to put it. Um, and I think we're going to see other elections around the world where, um, particularly in France, Brazil and Hungary, where, um, you know, they're going to be seen as litmus tests for the, the, the health of democracy and the state of, of populism. And we're going to see the sort of French Donald Trump, Eric Zemmour, um, as a contender in the presidential election, uh, how you know how much support will he get? How's that going to go? What's going to happen to Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil? Um, again, a sort of test of whether populism has run its course. And then, of course, what's going to happen with Viktor Orbán in Hungary, where for the first time he faces a, a unified opposition. So I think this this whole kind of broader question of how um, whether democracy or or autocracy are sort of better ways of running things. Joe Biden, in his first press conference as president um, earlier this year, said that there's essentially a battle underway between the utility of democracies in the 21st century and autocracies. And he says we've got to prove that democracy works. Um, people are worrying not just about whether democracy works or not, but whether it might even you know, be under threat, whether it's whether it's its survival is in question um, in the US. And it's it's not about just surviving. It's about showing that democracy is superior. So I think there's going to be a lot of this sort of, you know, reading into into these um, uh, political set pieces in 2022, uh, wider points about whether democracy or autocracy is the better system for delivering growth, stability and innovation. One final thing to say there, actually, is that th there are potentially um, things where America and China could cooperate on things like trade, on things like climate on things like cybersecurity or nuclear non-proliferation. But it seems quite unlikely that um, cooperation in those areas will happen in 2022 in particular, because it's in both countries' interest not to. Joe Biden won't want to do any deals with China that will make him look weak. Being tough on China is one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans agree on. And Xi Jinping is going to want to keep, going to want to keep everything as stable as possible next year to ensure his own transition to this the next few years of his rule. That said, the need to preserve stability does at least mean that we think conflict over Taiwan or in the South China Sea is unlikely. Okay, let's moving on to the pandemic. Obviously, the uh, Omicron variant is the is the big unknown here. But we think that generally the trajectory from a pandemic towards an endemic disease that is sort of broadly um, you know, dealable with and livable with uh, will continue. Uh, this chart here shows you the impact of the uh, the vaccines in breaking the uh, the link between cases and deaths. And this this is just data from the US and Israel, but obviously they were countries that uh, vaccinated quite quickly early on. Um, and you know that's what we're seeing in the UK. We're seeing quite high caseloads, but um, this is not turning into um, you know equivalent numbers of deaths and and hospitalizations as we saw in previous waves. We don't know yet whether Omicron will will break through more. You know the nightmare scenario is that it's much more spreadable and much more uh, much more virulent, so so causes a lot more disease and death. Um, we don't know. You know it's, it's it's too early to say. The 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 sort of happy scenario at the other end of the spectrum is that it is more spreadable and outcompetes Delta, but is actually milder. Um, and that would be sort of the next step along the road to uh, this becoming an endemic disease that can be 
treated and is you know not life-threatening and, and sort of moves it closer to being something like um, seasonal flu. Um, that said, uh, you know, this is very, very uneven. We've got uneven access to vaccines, and it may be that Omicron is controllable if you have a good level of vaccination, but is you know a real problem if you don't. Um, we should have some better vaccines next year, uh, second generation vaccines, uh, and also vaccines that can be delivered in new ways through, for example, um, uh, skin patches or inhalation. And I think also very significant to watch out for next year are these new antiviral treatments from Merck and Pfizer. These are essentially pills that can be given to people who test positive. You take them for, week, for a week like a course of antibiotics and you're then 90% less likely to become seriously ill or die. And what's really interesting about these antivirals is the way they work is they essentially stop the ribosome, the, the cellular machinery from replicating RNA, which is what vaccines do. They are RNA and they just basically program the machines to reproduce themselves. And by blocking that mechanism, this is not something that is specific to particular strains or variants of coronavirus. So there's there's quite high levels of confidence that those pills, which seem to work extremely well against the existing variants, will work just as well against Omicron. So that could become a really important um, new weapon uh, in our fight to suppress the the virus and the, the new variants of the virus. And I think, you know, a year ago, if you remember where we were, that we knew that vaccines were coming. Uh, we had these very promising results um, and we also knew that, you know, fast at home testing was going to be widely available and as it now is in, in, uh, in many countries around the world. And both of those things sort of sounded like sci-fi um, in November, December of, of, of 2020. And we're now in many parts of the world used to um, vaccination. You know, many, many of us in Britain have had our, our booster jabs now. We've got piles of tests downstairs and, you know, whenever we've got people coming around or we're going out, we can do we can do tests quite easily. And I think um, that's become quite normal for um, for people in many parts of the world. And I think the things that are going to change next year that sound like sci-fi now, but, you know, we could see quite widely are these new um, these new forms of, of vaccine and these new antiviral pills. So fingers crossed that um, this will help us to uh, move down the road. What, what this will probably mean, um, I mean, what does success look like here? The sad truth is that um, there, are, there are still enormous inequalities here uh, as there are with many other diseases. And, um, you know, if you, if you think of a disease like malaria, malaria is a minor inconvenience to people from the rich world. Maybe they pick it up when they go to the tropics on holiday. Um, and if they notice it, so when they come back, then they get given some pills and it goes away. Malaria, meanwhile, affects hundreds of millions of people around the world and kills millions of people every year. Um, that is a reflection of inequalities in income and in health systems. And, um, you know, I think the trajectory we, we are on is for coronavirus to become... Um, you know, just another disease in the sense that it's deadly and can be deadly if you're in the poor world and not if you're in the rich world. But sadly, the same is true of many other diseases. What Omicron reminds us, though, is what the, um, the head of the WHO likes to say, which is none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And the danger of um, pockets of the world where uh, new variants can still emerge really does remind us of the need to get vaccination coverage uh, very, very widely distributed. And then to ask ourselves why why it is that, you know, if we can do it for, for one disease, we can't do it for others. On the economy, I'm not going to say very much because we've heard we've heard quite a bit. But yes, I would totally agree with this uh, analysis that what we're seeing now with these higher prices and the spike in energy prices is this rapid bounce back from the pandemic. This chart here shows you the, the extent to which spending in the US shifted from services to goods. Essentially, consumers couldn't spend on services like holidays and going to restaurants and going to the theatre because of lockdowns. So they spent the money that, that came through, uh, whether it was stimulus money or money they would otherwise have spent on services, they spent it on goods instead. That kept the economy going, uh, but it meant that we had this massive shift towards goods and that has strained supply chains and pushed up prices. And so, you know, I think uh, my colleagues 
who are economic experts uh, would agree with the analysis that this is probably temporary and that these uh, supply chains supply chain problems will ease they point out that the factors that kept rates and inflation low in the past will you know they still pertain and should reassert themselves next year the country we're actually most worried about though with a with stagflation or a sort of wage price spiral is britain it is uniquely exposed to labor shortages having closed borders to eu workers because of brexit we're also uniquely exposed to high energy prices because we're particularly dependent on natural gas and we've just heard you know the price of gas has really shot up and we're also very exposed to the price of imports because we're a very open economy and we're very dependent on imports so even before brexit and the pandemic british inflation was higher and more volatile and I think we're now uniquely vulnerable in the UK to the forces that are dragging down growth and pushing up inflation. And that's even before you put Omicron into the picture. Um, Going back to the global picture, I think the real concern with Omicron is that once you've done that trick of firing stimulus um, and uh, at people and, and having them spend money on goods instead of services, you can't do that trick again in 2022 because the supply chains for goods are already maxed out. Um, and that's what's really worrying that, you know, the freedom of movement that, that there is to stimulate economies, uh, you know, that we've pulled that lever. And you, once you pull that lever once, it's not a lever you can pull again. Um, so 2022 really is a pivotal year in this and a, a huge amount hinges on what we learn about um, Omicron in the next few weeks. Um, because, you know, switching to a world where we have sort of permanently higher spending on goods and, and less on services uh, would be very painful. Uh, let's move on to the future of work. Interestingly here, there's a general consensus that we're going to see hybrid working, so more um, in the future where people are splitting their time between home and the office. But that's about as far as the consensus goes. Um, there's an enormous amount of disagreement about the details. Now, I should, I should preface all of this by saying that only about 50% of the population, even in rich countries, can work from home. Um, but for those people who can, um, there, is a, there is a disparity between what their bosses want and what the workers want. Bosses generally like people to go into the office. Bosses have nicer offices. Uh, bosses like being in the office. They get to tell everyone what to do. Uh, and workers are less keen on going in. So there's a disparity there. Um, and, uh, and then there's also a disparity between what people say they want and what they actually do, what their revealed preference is when they are given a free choice. So a lot of workers in surveys have been saying that They like the idea of, you know, maybe work at home two days a week and in the office three days a week, something like that. But if you give them the choice, they actually stay at home four days a week or five days a week in some cases, uh, go into the office much less often. And all of this assumes that workers are sort of all the same and have similar preferences, and they don't. You look at this chart here, this is um, from a a survey of American workers, but you can see that there are disparities by gender and by ethnicity on whether people want to go back to the office or not. There was an extraordinary survey by Slack that found that 3% of black knowledge workers in America want to return to the office full time versus 21% of white knowledge workers. You can also see that whether people have children or not affects whether they want to go back to the office. If you are um, involved with juggling childcare and work, uh, then flexible working, working more from home is something that appeals to you a lot more. So the risk here is that there's a danger of unfairness if some workers go back to the office more than others and are more visible to their superiors. And the sort of nightmare scenario here is that if basically the young, white, childless men all rush back to the office and get the face time with the managers, then they get all the pay rises and the promotions. And then we see things like broader gender pay gaps. We go backwards on diversity and so on. And this would be the exact opposite of what people um, in some quarters were predicting when the great work from home experiment began in 2020. There was a lot of optimism back then that it could lead to fairer and more equal workplaces. People talked about a zoomocracy where we're all equal in our little tiles in a video call and where the pandemic was a sort of opportunity to address 
discrimination and inequality and revisit sort of processes and, and, and assumptions on lots and lots of levels. It's now clear, though, that the hybrid workplace of the future will be unfair unless it's designed not to be. And that's going to take a while to work out. It's going to require a lot of discussion and dialogue. Um, and we're going to sort of embark on that in earnest in 2022, I think. There are also lots of other things about the future of work that need sorting out. Employment law needs updating. There are big questions about how much surveillance of people working from home, people working remotely is appropriate. You know, these programs that monitor how many keys you're pressing on, how much you're moving your mouse, and people are buying devices that make it look like they're moving their mouse when they're actually they're out walking the dog or whatever. Health and safety uh, requirements need looking at. I'm sitting in rather an old chair here. If I get a bad back as a result, whose fault is it? And then there are tax rules. You know, all of those bankers in, uh, in New York who are no longer going to Manhattan to work, but are in adjacent states, and those states are now starting to say, well, hang on a minute, maybe the tax revenue belongs to us and not to New York State. Um, so I think there are an awful lot of um, arguments and questions and debates about the future of work um, that we need to work out. And, and uh, we'll be sort of moving down that road in 2022. Let's move on to the tech clash. Tech clash is a, a sort of backlash against big tech, a term coined by The Economist, uh, in fact, in this uh, annual a few years ago. And yet, despite the lawsuits and the fines, the tech giants march on and their growth and their profits seem to be undented. And I'm sure we'll see more lawsuits and more bosses being hauled up in front of government committees next year and more scandals about bad behaviour. But what's really interesting is the way that the discussion about TechLash completely changed in 2021 because the Chinese government launched a brutal crackdown against its tech industry, halting IPOs, banning video games during the week for kids, banning celebrities from social media in some cases, deciding that the entire online tutoring sector needed to be non-profit. And this has wiped about one and a half trillion dollars um, off the value of, uh, of Chinese tech firms, uh, all under the cover of the pandemic. And this was clearly something the government was planning and the pandemic has provided sort of useful cover. And Xi Jinping wanted to remind people who was boss uh, to some extent after some tech firm bosses got a bit too big for their boots. But he also essentially wants to change the direction of the Chinese tech industry and have Chinese tech firms focus more on hard tech like artificial intelligence and quantum computing and robotics that give China a geostrategic advantage rather than frivolous things like food delivery or new kinds of online shopping. And I think the big question is, will this work? If you look at the numbers, um, you can see that startup funding for Chinese companies, uh, you know, in the, in the US it's shooting up and in, in, China, in China it's going down. We think it's much more likely to stifle economic dynamism, hamper innovation, reduce entrepreneurism. Meanwhile, back in America, America's politicians would never admit it, but they would love to be able to clobber their tech giants in the way that China has. You can't do that in a democracy, of, of course. Again, this is along with bashing China. This is the one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree on, that tech firms are bad and need to be need to be clobbered. So I think we'll, we'll probably see gradual you know, tweaks of the rules in 2022 seems the most likely outcome. Maybe new rules on privacy, on consumer data, online protection of children. Uh, tweaks to Section 230 on content moderation, the extent to which data can be shared between apps. And I think a lot of that actually, like GDPR um, in, in Europe, I think that this could steer the tech companies uh, away from some of their more egregious uh, misbehavior. But I think the threat of action is probably going to prompt as much change as action itself. I mean, look at the way Apple is making it easier to repair its devices. And in fact, in the competition between uh, these companies, it's the other tech giants that the tech giants are most worried about and shifts in the technology, longer term shifts. Uh, that, I think, is more likely to reshape the tech landscape than regulation. Let's move on. Crypto and what's happening with, with uh, the future of finance. I think crypto is sort of growing up. The fact that regulators are trying to stifle it 
uh, shut it down and sort of domesticate it is a sign of its, um, you know, it's being taken more seriously. Essentially, what we're seeing here is three competing visions for the future of finance. The sort of vision of the traditional tech industry, big tech firms like Google, Apple and Facebook, who have seen what Chinese firms have done, like Alibaba and Tencent, and they've managed to build these big payment infrastructures and these super apps that people can sort of spend their whole lives in. Uh, they can use them for you know all sorts of things that in the West we're used to uh, dealing with banks for. So you've got that vision. Then you've got the kind of distributed finance crypto blockchain crowd who say, no, you know, the problem with that vision is it's all centralized. Look at the bad behavior that you get from these big centralized tech platforms. Centralizing everything into super apps is the opposite of what we need to be doing. Instead, we need to be uh, doing all of this uh, decentralized finance. And then you've got the central banks saying, well, hang on a minute. If someone's going to issue uh, digital currencies around here, shouldn't it be us? And uh, so you've got central bank digital currencies and China is is furthest down that road. We think that the the, um, the fight between these three camps will intensify in 2022 and it will be the regulators who decide, you know, what the right mixture of these various things is going to be. You know, there's this very active debate about the best way to regulate crypto. Does it need a new regulator? Crypto firms say yes, but that's just because they don't like the SEC. Uh, because its boss actually understands crypto and is very, very critical of the industry. So this is, though, I would say, suggest this is a movie we've seen before. You very often get this with radical new technologies and their supporters say this is going to change everything. Um, and then it gets domesticated and some compromise is found between the, the old ways of doing things and new ways of doing things. Central bank digital currencies are not cryptocurrencies. They don't use blockchains. Um, but they are very interesting and they would grant central banks superpowers, the ability to see what's going on in the economy. It would be much easier to cut interest rates below zero uh, and you know, much easier to pass stimulus at people if you want to do it. So um, you know, there are drawbacks to them as well. So I think this is a really interesting debate and we're going to see more of it. But it sort of reminds me of what happened with Napster when Napster appeared 20 years ago. And it was like really cool. You could call up any music you liked straight away from the Internet. The problem was it was completely illegal. Um, and uh, but what this showed was there was enthusiasm for for this idea of the jukebox in the sky. And it then took several years for a legal version of the same thing with the same benefits to appear in the form of, 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 of platforms like Spotify. And I think that's what we're seeing now, that crypto is very exciting because it allows you to, you know, it does address some perceived problems with the existing ways of doing things. And uh, the question is, you know, how does that get domesticated? Let's move on to climate. We've seen, you know, more extreme weather in 2021. We've also seen the COP26 uh, conference not really producing very much. And in fact, just when we're supposed to be cutting emissions, we've been turning coal-fired power stations back on again. Energy prices are shooting up um, because, you know, post-COVID rebound has boosted demand for all sorts of things. Um, so again, how long is this going to last? Well, um, we think it will probably be a, be a blip, but even if it's short-lived, there could be more of these crunches in, in the future. And the real problem here is that the investment in new energy infrastructure is running at about half the level it needs to be. Um, we need to be spending globally about $5 trillion a year on new energy infrastructure in order to reach net zero by 2050. And we're only spending about half as much. So essentially, the answer to both of these problems, the short term crunch and the long term problem of climate change is invest more money in this infrastructure. That's not enough on its own, though. Globally, we can only make progress if China decarbonizes because it's the world's biggest emitter. Um, so I think there's also a, an interesting question about you know, how the West can cooperate with China on climate change, even while geopolitical tensions are rising. And there are areas we manage to cooperate on things like manufacturing iPhones. So you know, how can we cooperate in the same way? And in fact, in our pages in the annual this year, we have an interesting suggestion from Ma Jun, who is a leading Chinese environmentalist, his NGO has built a, a database 
that essentially maps the emissions of Chinese factories. And he says the way the obvious point of cooperation between the West and China on climate change is when Western firms who do a lot of manufacturing in China, when they're picking which factory to use, they could pick the lowest carbon producer of a particular thing um, using this database. And that would then put pressure on other providers to cut their own emissions. And he's done this. He's done this game before. He produced a um, a database of other kinds of pollution, not carbon emissions and methane emissions, but uh, but just you know other forms of pollution. Um, and that was very successful in reducing the amount of, of pollution from Chinese factories over the, over the course of about a decade. Um, so I think that's an interesting sort of model. Uh, are there ways that Western companies, if the politicians aren't going to do very much yet, um, are there ways that Western companies can cooperate directly with Chinese companies to, to try and cut cut emissions. The other thing to watch out for next year is this solar geoengineering experiment that the Harvard researchers want to do, re releasing dust from a high altitude balloon to dim sunlight, essentially like a volcanic eruption does. They want to release a whole two kilograms of chalk dust. Not very much. You've probably been in classrooms with more chalk dust than that. But it's hugely controversial because this sort of sets a precedent that we should be, um, you know, figuring out how to do this. The Harvard researchers are saying, look, this is this is just a, a, a way that we may need to buy more time to cut carbon emissions if we're not going to cut them fast enough. Uh, we should be at least, you know, figuring out whether this works at all, what the consequences are. Um, so expect a big fight. This this experiment keeps being delayed um, because it's so controversial. Um, but uh, there's going to be another argument about that next year. Um, very quickly, travel. Uh, we've still got some countries uh, pursuing suppression strategies. Um, uh, but, but unwinding them, but we've got lots of countries imposing new restrictions now because of Omicron. So uh, very much up in the air there. Uh, we have seen travel starting to come back. I think the big question, you know, in the longer term is we saw business travel didn't bounce back to its previous levels after previous crises, after 9-11, after the global financial crisis. It's unlikely to rebound this time around because we've all got used to using video calling the technologies a lot better. Bill Gates says he thinks half of business travel could be gone for good. But, you know, this is this is good for the planet, but it's it's actually bad for, for tourists because their tickets are, and hotels are subsidized by high spending business travelers. So, um, again, that could be a sort of reshaping of the economics of the tourism industry. The other interesting thing that's, that we're seeing is the sandbox strategy that's been pioneered by Thailand where you're allowed into certain parts of the country before moving on to others. So I think we're seeing some quite interesting innovative models here as these various restrictions are introduced and removed and as we sort of have the, um, the whack-a-mole against new variants and, um, you know, we get new, new vaccines and we get new treatments. Um, I think we are seeing some interesting uh, innovation and new ways of looking at things uh, when it comes to travel and tourism. Staying with tourism, space tourism, it turns out, is an anagram of come upstairs. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Um, 2021 is the first year uh, we've seen a lot of um, competition between space tourism countries this, uh, companies this year. 2022, we're probably going to see more people going to space as paying passengers than as government employees for the first time. We've got this terrific rivalry between these, these private space companies. We've also got the more traditional rivalry between superpowers. China wants to finish its space station next year, which will be permanently crude. India's going to have another go at sending a lunar probe uh, to the moon. The last one crashed. And we've also got this rivalry to make films in space. Russia just sent um, a, an actress and a filmmaker to film on the International Space Station in 
in October. Um, Tom Cruise was also supposed to be making a film in space, but nothing seems to be happening with that. So as with Sputnik, um, in this particular race, it looks like the Russians will get there first and they'll they'll get that movie out more quickly. There's also a real mission happening next year that sounds like a Hollywood movie, but is a real movie, which is where NASA is going to crash a space probe into an asteroid um, to uh, to sort of practice defending the Earth from rogue asteroids. So that should be a, a spectacular show later in the year. And finally, sport, we've got the Winter Olympics in Beijing and the World Cup in Qatar. And these are both obviously, you know, reminders of how sport can unite the world. And that was wonderful with the Olympics this year. But the, these these particular contests are also going to be reminders of how sport can become a political football. So expect protests and boycotts uh, in both countries uh, or directed against the host countries in both cases. We're already seeing some of this. Uh, you can't really do anything about uh, protesting against China. They're not letting anyone in from foreign countries to uh, to watch the games. Um, which is very convenient, but they're using COVID as a, as a pretext for banning foreign, foreign spectators altogether. Um, so instead, what we're seeing is protests um, against the major sponsors of the Olympics, and uh, they're getting called out in the West. You know, are you? Do you really want to uh, to support the Olympics? Why are you doing this? Similarly, for the football, we've seen the Netherlands, Germany, and the Norwegian. Uh, football teams protesting against the choice of Qatar as host country. Um, but in neither case, are we going to see national teams actually pulling out of these contests? We're just going to see a lot of sort of, um, I, I think, protest and uh, noise around the edge, uh, particularly directed at the, at the sponsors. OK, those are my themes and predictions for 2022. I hope you found that helpful. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.